learning curve. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Life's Learning Curve, the podcast. This is season two and episode 30. Thanks. Nice echo. (laughs) I'm your host, Paul Hart. My background, once again, is in writing technical media in the world of education. Finding the best version of you takes a while, maybe even a lifetime. Probably for most of us, it takes a lifetime. These are the stories, the good, the bad, the in-between, the people, the events, the experiences that help make us who we are today. Life is a journey. Here we share those stories, the learning curve of life. We share those with you. That's our podcast. Please subscribe. We're at lifeslearningcurve.org and we'd love to have you. Hey, I'm so glad you're here with us today and I'll tell you why. You know, uh, in life, things that we look forward to, things we anticipate, as much as we practice or research or whatever, we think it's going to turn out one way, the way you expect it, but it very seldom does. Very seldom. Expectations. You know, those unexpected things in life where you experience something and learn from it that can really make an impression on your personal character, your personality, who you are. It was 1976, and I was proud to attend my freshman year at a university downstate here in the mid-Midwest. My friends all told me back at home here before I left, I was actually very lucky to be going away, to get out of town, and not to have to attend the local community college, which so many people did. With that in mind, I looked forward to the higher learning, the experience that I was going to get, and all that goes with it. New friends, socializing, I was away from my parents, how would I be? Was I going to be crazy? Was I going to be sane? Was I going to be respectful? I don't know. Didn't know. But that year, something happened. Things didn't turn out the way that I thought at all. Life had thrown me an unexpected learning curve. Totally unexpected. Which almost took me out for good. So... Let's pack up our hot plate, let's pack up our mini fridges and our clothes and our day-to-day stuff and travel downstate five hours for freshman year and see just what happened. Sebastian. This is Life's Learning Curve. I'm Paul Hart. Episode, Eastern Nights. Stand by. Recently, I got together with an old high school buddy a few weeks back, and we swapped some stories and some memories, and, you know, I I haven't laughed that hard for a long time. We did such silly things when we were teenagers. (laughs) But in recalling that time period, we both had a common friend named Pete. I got accepted, and I chose to attend Eastern Illinois University. My prior dream of attending the University of Illinois, U of I, finding a band to play good music with, were dashed by too high of a tuition that year. We were just not able to financially get me to the University of Illinois. By the way, see Life's Learning Curve, episode 22, my Kerouac summer, for more on that. And Pete would be my roommate my freshman year of college. We settled into our dormitory in a tiny little room upstairs. And I mean it was small. Like a matchbox. It would be a very muggy and hot fall and even a warm winter. Hot. And the nights? Hot. Sticky. Hot. 
I remember lots of hot, lots of sweat at night. Even with two fans spinning and buzzing on high, the nights were heat-filled and it was always hard to sleep. In that dank, dark humidity. Beyond the heat, Pete and I were up for it though. We were 18 years old and he and I were anxious to meet new people, make some like-minded friends. However, our first three weekends of that school year unexpectedly didn't even know. I had people come and visit me. After only five days of classes, that first weekend, my mom and my grandma took a road trip downstate, and it was, you know, it was nice to see them. Um, Somebody's here. Uh, it only had been a week since my parents had dropped me off, but good company and happy home feelings again. And I recall that week there was an extreme heat wave. We're talking about, I remember, close to 100. We were in the upper 90s. And it was hitting our area downstate. And my mom and grandma stayed a mile off campus in a hotel room and it had a pool. So Pete and I were happy to go to the pool and swim and cool off and just, it felt so good. And my mom and my grandma also fed both of us like a metric ton of food, which is what mom and grandmas do. So that made them happy. So it was nice to see them. They stayed for two days and then they were gone again. The second weekend, my older sister Sue and her boyfriend Brian took my roommate Pete and I about one hour away on a drive to the closest university for a German beer festival called Schützenfest. Schützenfest. Never took German, but Schützenfest. All right. Schützenfest. Where they served beer to you and you purchased them in large filled buckets. A bucket of beer, literal bucket of beer. We drank way plenty mucho a lot of beer uh dizzy queasy this is both of us pete both pete and i overconsumed, and i can remember as my sister and brian drove us back to campus it took pete and i about two entire days to recover i remember we just laid in the room and moaned a lot i remember wondering how could my sister drink a bucket of beer. You know, she wasn't heavy at all. She was all the right weight for a girl or whatever that is. Later, she told me that she only occasionally sipped that beer and occasionally she would spill some out of the bucket, making it look like she had drunk more beer than she had. Oh, I thought to myself, so that's how you survive excessive beer bought in buckets. <laughs> you only occasionally sip it and spill it. Oh. Well, I had come from this world in life at home where you have to eat everything on your plate. So I applied it to beer, too. I shouldn't have done that. Life's learning curve right there. The third weekend was Parents Weekend, and I did know that my parents were coming down for Parents Weekend. And that weekend was cool because veteran entertainer, comedy legend Bob Hope performed at the Fieldhouse. How cool. My dad, my mom, and I had a great time, and we had some great meals together. Plus, I got to see this comedic living legend from films and from television. It was really, really good. It was good to see my dad again, too. But there was a problem, and I'll tell you what, it took me years 
and years to figure this one out. I didn't do it back then. Having visitors three weeks in a row consumed all of my time on the weekends. I had missed all of the planned mixers with the boys and the girls, college students. And I missed all the parties in the other dorms. I missed dorm parties that were far away. I missed fraternity parties to recruit and just plain meet new people on campus. So basically by week four, most of the guys in our dorm floor had made ancillary new friends of some type. They might be girls, they might be boys, it might be new girlfriends, whatever. They were branching out socially. And somehow I had managed to bring the shyest version of me to college. It was just Pete and me still. No new friends. Okay, on to college classes. I had wanted to go into journalism, but by mid-year, my instructors were all saying the same thing, that it was a dying profession. Now, this was just prior to the internet beginning. None of us knew it was coming. So things were about to change for the better in journalism, but we didn't have any idea. We just heard newspapers and magazines, that type of thing, were just lessening. But one thing looked to be sure. Journalism was a career that was near dead. In my full load of classes that semester, I chose two classes that were within my intended major, journalism. In a class called Practical Journalism 101, we had a guest professor who really was a working real-life publisher editor at a real paper at that time, who called himself Scoop. I know, it's a a corny nickname, but yeah, that's what he called himself, Scoop. Last name, Scully. (laughs) Scoop Scully. His paper was called, I remember, the Taylorville Gazette. And I like this guy because he was a straight shooter. He told us of real life at the newspaper, things he had to do day by day, what he did from the first thing in the morning to when they put the paper to bed for the afternoon edition. The good stuff, the bad stuff, all of it. And the reporters that he managed, young and old. Scoop told us, Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Old reporters doesn't always mean good reporters. Scoop retold, yeah, he wanted us to call him Scoop. (laughs) He preferred it. Call me Scoop, yeah. Scoop told the story in class of a middle-aged male reporter who had become hysterical and Scoop had to talk this guy down after he was being threatened by some drifter that had come into town after the reporter had written a questionable and improbable local house fire which occurred in town. The reporter became fearful and he eventually became extremely paranoid and began to drink and he drank his way right out of his job. Scoop also told us the importance of keep facts detached from feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, you must do that. I particularly liked when Scoop brought in his actual weekly column, his editorial. Scoop's paper was published in the small town where people kind of saw him as a witty and glib Will Rogers type of guy 
Who's Will Rogers? Uh, good question. Around the 1920s and 1930s, Will Rogers was this American Cherokee-born stage and film actor. He was in vaudeville. He was a regular performer. He did movies. He was a cowboy, newspaper columnist, and social commentator. Will had this earthy, folksy, down-home delivery, which allowed him to poke fun at almost everybody as well as controversial topics at that time. He did it in this aw shucks kind of way that most people embraced. He offended almost nobody. Ladies and gentlemen, looks like I took a page from the Will Rogers handbook. Scoop told us. Now, Scoop Scully titled his editorial... Like it was a scene out of Mayberry, North Carolina. Most newspaper editorials are opinion pieces titled something like uh, The Way I See It or How I See It or My Perspective or even just plain old editorial. Scoop's Weekly Byline was the longest title I'd ever seen (laughs) in a newspaper. It was called... Around the Cracker Barrel with Scoop Scully, just whittling. The title itself was like a Norman Rockwell illustration. My editorials are my take on community affairs, and I'm always driven by a passion and a desire to maintain the purity of our little town, keeping things rural and very unique, just like our little town. Scoop wrote very well and somehow made his local editorial friendly while giving his take on an issue or an event or something. Scoop Style had that New York editorial polished feel, yet it was gently wrapped up in this charming rural quip about, uh, he'd add things like about, uh, uh, about corn or something at the very end or at the beginning. He talked about the corn harvester or, or, or a simple living or farmers or something. It's nice. Nicely done. It wasn't heavy-handed. Now, I earned, at the end of the semester, I earned an A from that class. And I passionately worked for Scoops Gully because I wanted to. Man, this guy was good. This was a hands-on type of guy who I could easily learn from. Now, one of the things that I liked was that Scoop always reviewed my writing, everything I turned in with me. He'd go over it with me later. He did it with everyone in class, which takes a while, but it's ooh so helpful. And he expressed what was good and what was weak. Good to know, straight shooter. He'd offer suggestions, three different ways to go, like that. He was a square shooter, and it was almost second nature to go through writing for him. He did it fast. He was very thorough. If you listened, you learned a lot from Scoop. We all did. Scoop was this real deal of a guy, and to this day, I use many of his techniques that he taught me way back then. Some of his style when I need to, and very much so the suggestions in my notebook I've used throughout my life. In my other journalism class, which was called Foundations in Journalism 102, Professor Kasankis, a man in his early 60s, had spent his time, his life, on campus in the classroom teaching journalism away 
disconnected from the actual world of journalism and publication. Now, he had written a book back in his 20s, when he was in his 20s, but that was it. Tired seeming, bored, disinterested. This instructor failed every piece of writing I handed in to him. True. The girl next to me always got A's. And I would notice as the papers got passed back. I asked her once if she could read what I had written. And she agreed and she did read it. And when she returned to me, she said, I read what you wrote. It was tight, it was complete, and it fulfilled the assignment. So she had no idea of why I was failing. Me either. I tried to access Professor Kosenkis after class and during office hours. That's what professors do. They give you office hours. If you have any problems, come see me, and they'll give you office hours. I needed direction on my writing. I remember when I went to his office, it was dark, and there was a huge window which spotlit his desk, and the office smelled like a closet my, at my grandma's house. Musty, I guess. I remember telling him, uh, thanks for seeing me, Professor Kosenkis. Uh, look, I really need some help. I'm failing with every single assignment you give us, and I, I want to be better. I have to learn to be better. Can you help direct me so I can write better? I'll, I'll never forget this. This is etched in my brain. Certain things are etched in your brain. Professor Kosenkis was in a, a chair at his desk. He leaned back in his chair and with his hands folded behind his neck, elbows up, Professor Kosenkis stared at me briefly and then he stared at the ceiling for two or three seconds. He looked back at me and then he stared a long time at the ceiling. Finally, he looked at me out of the side of his eyes and he smiled broadly. He leaned forward in his chair. He slapped the desk with both hands. Got my attention. And he told me, Look, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Mr. Hart, yes. Just keep writing. Write more. So I did. I wrote more. And Professor Kosenkis continued to fail me. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. I had one journalism class I was making progress and learning in, and the other one I was failing and I had no one to tell me why. I guessed that this might be a grading strategy from Professor Kosenkis and that my grades would slowly rise, you know, like, oh, you're learning from me, so look at your grades come up. They didn't. And if it had not been for extra credit, I would have not have passed Professor Kosenkis' class. However, I was encouraged by Scoop Scully, and I was told by him that my writing was, you know, it, it was at its beginning, but he did see potential. He liked it. He told me he liked to read it, is what he told me. Doggone it, you have a feeling for this, Paul. You make readers care about what you're reporting. I like reading when you write things. He particularly liked the hooks I put into my stories. I always like your hooks, Paul. They're subtle as a honeybee and a flower in the spring. And as a reader, I never see them coming. That's the best. 
A story hook is when, like, a writer puts in something into a story, an element, for example, like, uh, it might be a car crash, and, you know, y y there's a teddy bear on the pavement in the early parts of the story, and it's not mentioned throughout the story, and as the story continues, the teddy bear emerges at the very end, often to amuse or to remind people uh, or provide some sort of irony to the piece. But there was that one thing both of my professors agreed on in journalism. It was a dying profession. And probably none of us would find success in a dying career like this. I learned also something. That grading the written word by two separate professors can be subjective. I was not the only person that year fronting a career crisis of choice. My freshman year roommate was a great guy named Pete from my high school. He was second generation Latvian, spoke English just fine, but his parents were first generation. Pete really had a lot going for him, including respect, he had tradition in his background, and a good work ethic. We had roomed together a couple of years prior to that on a European trip in high school, and we got on pretty well. We also got on well at Eastern Illinois University until real life raised its ugly face freshman year. Now, the drinking age in, here in the mid-Midwest back then was 18 years old at that time. I think it's 21 again now. My great roommate, Pete, and I wasted little time and we drank our savings for the first semester in a month. And this is why the drinking age shouldn't be 18. One of the reasons why. <laughs> the immature male mind. In other words, what we needed to last us from August till January was gone in one month. Too much beer and playing too much football in the rain on the quad, having fun. After the weekends of visitors ended after three weeks, on that fourth week, Pete and I realized we knew no other guys from home on campus, but we vaguely knew of two girls from back home. So we thought we'd try and seek them out. Neither Pete and I were very outgoing at all at the time. I was still going through my shy thing. So we heavily counted on these two girls that we vaguely knew. One was named Debbie. And Debbie always seemed to have a party going or was attached to a party that was going on, even on school nights. And she was also on the ladies' field hockey team. It was always fun to run into Debbie on a weekend. She was fun, but you never knew where you might find yourself the next morning. Destinations and drinking quickly got out of hand with Debbie and her field hockey friends. So Debbie was a confident girl who had friends with cars on campus. It was unique. One time on a Friday after classes, Debbie convinced us to take a car ride to Mattoon, Illinois right next door to Charleston. We had already consumed a couple beers by that time, and once we were all in Mattoon, we made the random, thoughtless group decision to park the car 
and board the Amtrak train back home to Chicago from Mattoon, which we did. So I recall six full train cars filled with drunken underclassmen passengers which had already boarded at Southern Illinois University. After six hours of witnessing excessive drunken behavior, uh, beer vomits, yeah, by others, more inebriated than us, we all safely disembarked to our respective houses back home up north in the suburbs. When I entered my house, it was about midnight. I expected my parents to be elated to see their youngest son again. My dad just sleepily wandered out of my parents' bedroom. Sleepily, he pierced his lips, sleepily, and told me to get to bed. It was late. Okay, I get it. It was late for them. <laughs> so I quietly took the steps up to my room. Things were different. I found there was a strange 20-something girl sleeping on my bed. <gasps> Apparently, my parents had rented out my room while I was gone at Eastern. On Sunday, my dad drove me back to school in total silence. I'll never come home unannounced again, I thought to myself. It wasn't right and it wasn't fair. And I didn't. It was my bad. Now my roommate Pete got even more of a cold shoulder from his parents. Another time, so I remember Pete and I laughing and having a beer casually in her dorm room, which incidentally was huge compared to our dinky little tiny room. What was up with that? I mean, really, we paid the same tuition. We were drinking there and the next thing we knew, Pete and I were in some girl's car and we were headed somewhere to a river and it was a waterfall area when we got out of the car. And I do recall it was really beautiful there. It was nighttime and it was like it was staged, lit like a movie set, but it wasn't. It was just probably a full moon and some reflected light. Anyway, it was less beautiful the next day when we woke up face first in the grass and had to hitchhike back into town uh, to campus. I wasn't very adventurous at that time and I decided Debbie just might be a little bit too carefree for me. Maybe a little bit too drunken and careless to be around very often. A red flag. For me, at least for that age. Now the other girl that we knew was more of a friend of Pete's and her name was Donna. Donna belonged to Rodney, who was Pete's best friend back home. Okay, so we got Pete, my roommate. Pete. We've got Donna, who's a girl down at Eastern Illinois University. Donna. Going to school there. And Rodney, who was five hours north back home. Rodney. So Pete was supposed to look out for this nice girl named Donna and make sure no other guys came close to her. He promised. As I said, I was headed toward a journalism career and Pete was headed toward a vocal or choir director career. I don't know what they call that, musical vocal performance or something. Donna would come over to practice voice parts in our super tiny, small dorm room. Hi, Pete. And when they practiced, I proudly wore my new noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> Very new at that time. And I studied. It worked. Hey, it was cool. So one night Donna and Pete were in the room while I worked at my desk and they were singing parts 
for one of their classes they had together. She was in voice as well. And they were singing in our tiny little room. And as they sang, once I pulled an earphone up just to listen for a second, and I heard Donna scolding Pete. Peter, stop goofing around. Sing right. Stop making dumb voices. You're wasting time. I've got to get back to the dorm in 15 minutes. After a few minutes, Pete left the room to use the bathroom. And the second he left, I tore off my headphones and I told Donna, Donna, I know you don't even know me, but that is the way Pete sings. That's his voice. He's way better than I could ever be, but just know that's him. He has this guttural sound in his voice, I guess. Donna said, Oh my gosh, he's not going to make it as a choral director. He can't sing. Pete was a decent singer. I had heard him throughout high school and he was in like men's ensembles where he thrived and did great. But if I had learned anything at Eastern, it was that professors could be subjective and biased. Remember, I was currently working with Scoop. That's a good piece of writing, Paul. And Dr. Kosenkis. Look, uh, Mr. Hart, your grade, you got another F. And within a week, that next Friday afternoon, I recall Pete sadly slunk into our tiny, hot dorm room one colorful fall afternoon after classes. And he told me his advisor had told him to leave the choral program. Pete said, Maybe I'll be a band director, I guess. So I had to find something other than journalism, and Pete had to find a new music major or something else as well. Our dreams and our moods went south really fast. The nights held hot temperatures and restricted sleep. A lot of sweating at night. There were no cell phones back then in 1975, so you couldn't call home unless it was an emergency. Why? because using a phone, calling long distance, as they used to call it, was very expensive. So I was told, don't call home unless it's an emergency. Although my parents said, we'd love to hear from you, but because of pricing, don't call home unless you need, really, really need to. So I decided something. I decided I would handle things myself. After all, I was an independent guy on campus. Boy, was I wrong. Not right. <laughs> Spinning out of control with no one to talk with, I suddenly realized the value and the quality time that my mother had put in with me the previous four years of high school. Often on Sundays, Sunday nights, or school nights where she didn't have papers to grade, she was a teacher, she would pour a cup of coffee and she'd laugh and she'd say, Let's sit on the rockers in the front room. I want to know what's going on in your life. It was her way of keeping in touch with the teenager. Smart. Now, I've owned a couple of those teenagers myself in recent years, and they do not always tell you things. Smart move on my mom's part. 
As for my mom, she never pried with me, and I never really told her very much at first. But within a few weeks, it was me asking to go sit in the rockers in the front room, and I would share with her my life. I'd tell her about a place I'd taken my girlfriend or something my girlfriend had said that bothered me or how good the food had been where we went to or that I got to get up and play with a band or something like that. My mom was a safe and a really great friend to me at that time. We shared things continually even in the later years. She told me once that those talks that we used to have in high school on Sundays helped her relax about the choices I was making in life. Because, you know, when your teenagers are out of the house, you don't know what they're doing all the time. You know what they should be doing, but you don't always know. So I'm proud to say we continued those talks up to the year that she passed, when I was 34 years old. By that time, we were mostly laughing and resharing stories about teaching or growing up in her generation versus my generation. But back to 1976. 18-year-old me at Eastern Illinois University each day became worse and worse. I felt as if I was wasting hard-earned money on a career, my profession, that was a dying profession. My roommate Pete was depressed. I could see that. And I understood that in that dorm room, which was no bigger than a shoebox, it was like living in a closet, we began to get on each other's nerves. And his mood soured, and so did mine. By mid-year, we separated as roommates because we were threatening each other and we were saying mean stuff to each other. Unlike our real personalities, neither one of us are like that. I began to lose sleep. I wasn't sleeping at night. Sometimes not sleeping three days in a row. You can imagine how this affected my classes I was taking. I remember going back home once, and I slept for 30 hours straight, and then went back to school. Back at Eastern. One evening, Donna stopped by our dormitory. Remember Donna? She was Rodney's girlfriend, Pete's best friend, from five hours north back home. When we got to the lobby, we saw Donna was crying. Concerned, we let her in. Apparently, she and Rodney had broken up. It is hard to maintain a relationship when you're so far away. Donna had been loyal, and she had. But back north, all alone, five hours away, Rodney's imagination dreamed up an alternative scenario in his head. The old, I wonder what Donna's doing now. I wonder if, oh no, I should call her. Oh no, I don't know. So he made himself crazy. Kudos to Pete because he was a loyal friend to his best friend Rodney. And Pete tried his best not to console Donna, but rather tell her, Donna, you're just being silly. Girls are like that. They make up little dramas. He said, wow. I thought that wouldn't go over at all at my house couldn't say things like that. Donna just looked ashamed and she cried harder and more. Pete said that if she continued to cry, he wouldn't stick around for her. He told her that she was just being mean to Rodney. Pete took off dismissively. I realized that some of these comments by Pete were because 
of his situation at college spilling into hers, and some of his statements were very traditionalist views of women from his parents' culture. Whatever it was, that's what he knew to say. So that hot fall evening at Eastern, Donna just stood there and wept. I didn't know what to do. I went for a beer and took her with, and we walked around so she could talk it out. No, we did not become a couple, or we didn't hook up, or anything like that. No, we became friends. And if my mother had not sat with me practically each Sunday for the past four years talking life with me, I would have never been able to help Donna see a future that she could control, not one that had to be controlled by someone else. It was her choice, not mine, not Pete's, not Rodney's, her call entirely. I almost couldn't believe that these words were coming out of my mouth. But they felt honest, real, and helpful. And I told Donna, Donna, talking about all of this will eventually help you relax, calm down about Rodney. and The choices that you're making, he may change his mind, too. You know, he might come back to you, and who knows? But if not, have a plan ready, one that works well for you. Peter was in flux, my roommate. He had stopped going to eat with me in the cafeteria, didn't like being with me at all, and he sat by himself in the dorm cafeteria. So I looked around in the cafeteria and I found a guy sitting all by himself. He looked kind of like he was a loner. I'm Paul. Can I sit here? And I sat and ate lunch and dinner with him from then on, and his name was Will. I'm Will. Turns out he was quiet, but he was funny and he was bright. Kind of a loner, though. He had uh, big thumbs. Literally, he had big thumbs. (laughs) Heart attack thumbs, they call those. But his doctor had told him he was fine, and he would be fine for many, many years. So he had checkups often. Will was someone, like I said, funny, and he was decent, who I could eat with and joke around with. Will had me even ride along with him in his car to a local jewelry store to buy his girlfriend an engagement ring. Want to come with me? Pretty cool. My first friend at Eastern... Nice. As I recall it, one day I went to dinner and Will didn't. He just disappeared. His dorm room was empty, and as hard as I tried, I never found out what happened to Will. And I asked a lot of people. Here today, gone tomorrow. To this day, I wonder what happened. When I came to Eastern way back in the late summer... I had also brought my green 10-speed, no-brand-name bicycle to campus. And aggressively, in early November, I began to ride it on all sunny days. Now, we were farther downstate, so we had a really warm, somewhat hot fall. A lot of great days to ride. I found that bike to be a way to relieve the stress of my classes. My dying major as a career choice and my frustrated roommate. Biking helped me sleep better at night. I began to look forward to get on the bicycle and pedal out of town, onto the dirt roads, 
than accessing a distant road or path in a cornfield. I would get off my bike, this is in the daytime now, and I would just sit there and think. It was so quiet that the wind was the only thing you could hear, only making gentle rustling of the fresh green corn stalks. With no distractions, I began to rethink my future, my career, my best future, what might be good for me or better for me. It was there that I began all over again. I pedaled there often and looked forward to it and sat and thought. My respect for nature and peace kind of began right there. In late November, the temps were still hot, as I said, and one of those eastern nights, I laid in bed and I made the decision not to come back to Eastern Illinois University the next semester. The first semester finals were in December, and I needed to make a decision. Either I would take a semester off, or I would return to the local community college back at home. I chose the latter. Community college allowed me to save money for my final two years back at a university. Just after making that decision, I began to sleep again. My classes were no longer blurry, sleepless, jumbly classes. Do you think you'll pass your classes? My mom asked me that over a phone call. I promised her I would pass them all, and I did. I left Eastern Illinois University with a 3.7 grade point average out of four points. So even for me, that was pretty good. My head had cleared. It was late in the game at Eastern, but I was beginning to organically meet new people. So late. Just before finals, I was walking out of the journalism building, Professor Scully's class, one day. And I began talking with a classmate named Carl Green. We talked sports. We talked about how great Professor Scully was because everybody just dug this guy because he was a real person and really helpful. We talked about music, too. Carl said, You don't know of any drummers around, do you? I froze, and I smiled. And I told him my background, playing in multiple bands throughout the years, playing drums and keyboards. That weekend, I sat in with Carl and his band called Carbonation. <laughs> the 70s. Carbonation playing Sundays. Yeah. Carbonation. I loved that name, Carbonation. I just thought it was really cool. Well, I don't know if they're all fizzy or what. That weekend, we even played a local gig in town. They had been short a drummer for quite a few months, and they were anxious to get out and play. It was so fun. It was so comfortable to play drums again and feel like myself. Plus, Carl's band was top-notch, very tight, and very harmonic. I liked the care and the passion everyone in the band put into their songs. They all got along. Whoa, if you've been in bands, you know that's a thing. And contributed with one another. Now, often in other bands I'd played with, Back at high school at home, the bandmates argued or were difficult to get along with, 
artistic temperament, whatever you want to call it. So Carl told me, When you come back next semester, bring your drums, okay? The guys in carbonation like you. It was too late. It was too late. I had already transferred my credit info and my grades back home to the local community college. And I had unenrolled at Eastern. Oh! Coming home. I did that. My parents were at the top of my support system. It was awkward to make that backward step to a community college, but to my surprise, the community college was excellent, really, and, and had engaging instructors. Unlike Professor Kosenkis, these people were proactive for the most part. Huh, who knew? Later, I continued on to Northern Illinois University, and in 1979, I got my bachelor's degree in education. I would teach. But I never forgot those hot nights at Eastern Illinois University back in 1976. Our bicentennial year. 18-year-old me felt as if I had failed big time. But time helped smooth out those thoughts. Now I know it was my career choice that had failed me. I had learned that some teachers were helpful. I had learned some teachers just didn't even care to be there. My roommate and I both failed each other. I had helped Donna. I learned biking helped me relieve stress. And that was important to know for me. And with time, friends and friendships, real friends, they came naturally. Life never really turns out the way you expect it. No. And it didn't for me. And by the way, don't drink beer from a bucket. <laughs> for Life's Learning Curve, I'm Paul Hart. See you next time. Subscribe to Life's Learning Curve at lifeslearningcurve.org and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser. This podcast is put together by producer Paul Hart with assistance by Matt Mayer, Bob Franklin, and S.T. Dodd. We're mixed by Alice Reese, technical director Heidi Cerner, music and sound, as always, by Riley Hart. On this show, special thanks to Pete Tones, Donna Tennis, and Debbie Buntram, along with Scoob Scully. Thanks for the inspiration. Our website is lifeslearningcurve.org. Please subscribe. Some names and voices were changed in the podcast for entertainment purposes. Help us grow and continue by liking us on Facebook. Listen to us almost everywhere. Podcasts are found. For Life's Learning Curve, episode Eastern Nights, I'm Paul Hart. We will be back soon with more from Life's Learning Curve. 
We're clear. We're clear. We're clear. We're clear.